As those baskets are making their way around, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll throw these texts on the screen. You can also um, grab a Bible on the way out today. It's our pleasure to, 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 to give you one of those. As for some months now, we've been in the Gospel of John, and we'll be, hence, for some many months slash years to come. And we're in John 4. The title of, of this whole series is called Believe. And it's a reminder why John wrote this gospel. John makes it pretty clear why he wrote this gospel. It wasn't to give us nifty stories or, or sort of fables or myths to tell our children at night or fodder for our Sunday school felt boards. You can tell what era I grew up in, right? Not, 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 not for any of those things, although they have their place. John says he's written for one fundamental reason, and it's so that you would believe And in believing, you would have life in Jesus' name. That's that's his fundamental aim. And so to kind of help us grab hold of that um, concept and what we're doing here is we've made available these sermon guides. You can use these to take notes. That is allowed during the sermon. You can take notes. You can use these in your community groups for discussion questions, for prayer, or your personal devotions and in quiet times. And you can grab one on the way out today. But John 4 is where we are, the woman at the well, which is probably one of the most well-known stories in all of the Bible. There's lots here, and so we've sort of set aside three weeks to cover everything in this story. It's kind of like the very first Star Wars trilogy when it came out. Do you think they tried to crunch all that into one movie, George Lucas? No, no. It took three movies of goodness. And so it's taken us three weeks of goodness to unpack what we have here, this trilogy of sermons. So here we go. If you weren't with us, or even if you were, here, here's where we've been. We looked at part one last week, a woman, the well, and the worship of God. And we saw that, that Jesus revealed himself to be a pursuer, a provider, and a provocateur. Yes, we did use that term. That Jesus, journeying from Judea near Jerusalem, is going north to begin his ministry in Galilee, which is near his hometown. He and his disciples decide to go through Samaria, which is a cultural no-no. These were the hated Samarians, the half-breeds, the, 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 the sort of bastardized religion that was a mix between um, you know, Judaism and then, and then other pagan rituals and deities, and they were just absolutely despised. And we saw here that Jesus, though, purposefully makes a beeline for Jacob's well, where he engages this woman in conversation. And this was a scandal on every level. It was a racial scandal. It was a cultural scandal to be having a conversation with a woman in public. It was a religious scandal, and it was a moral scandal. This was a woman of ill repute. Remember, she, had, she was a serial adulterer in five marriages and living with somebody who wasn't her husband. And she had to visit the well in the off hour, so to speak, so nobody would, would be up in her business. Try to think of a cultural parallel to what this would be like. Imagine if you were driving through Charlottesville, Virginia last weekend during those white nationalist rallies. And you saw somebody here from church sitting at a coffee shop with three guys with hoods on, what would you think? Where would your mind go? What sort of questions 
would be raised. And so that, that's essentially what Jesus is doing. That's the cultural, moral, spiritual, ethnic equivalent. And we find, though, that he engages this woman because he wants to offer her something, provide her something that she does not have, and that is living water, which is really just a metaphor, a picture of the presence and power of God. You see, that woman was just like us. She had this hole in her heart, and she attempted to use everything she could to fill that hole. In this case, it was relationships, it was sex, it was intimacy, it was security and closeness. And so she cycled through men like tissue paper and, and one after the other, all in this desperate attempt to fill the hole in our heart. And we said, that's us. That's us. That's what, that's what we do. And Jesus, not because he, he dislikes her or because he's trying to be mean, but because he loves her, he provokes her. And he asks her this, these series of questions that penetrate her heart to show her, you know what? What you're really after, you can never fill with these relationships. And he does the same for us. He, he reveals things about our heart and the way that we're living life and our idols to show us what we really want, what we really desire, what we really need is him. And, and having that sinful heart can be, uh, be, to be exposed can be painful. It can be incredibly difficult, but it's good. Because we walked out of here last week being reminded that, that far from the woman at the well or white supremacist or whoever being at a distance from us, we are those people. We are the woman at the well. We are the one in desperate need of the mercy and grace of God. And so here we come to part two today where Jesus is going to sort of pop the hood a little bit and reveal to her what it means to worship this person called living water. That's who Jesus is, that I am the living water. What does it mean to worship me? He is going to have a word with her about her worship. And in the process, he is going to, for Oaks, have a word with us about our worship. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to be in John 4. We're going to pick this up at verse 7. We stand because we stand under the word of God. It's not about what I think or say or my perspective if it's not reflective and true of the word of God. So we let him have his way. Let's start at verse 7 and read together, and we'll splash the, the text on the screen. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. 
And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will, Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Let's pray. Father, amazing that we get to eavesdrop on one of the most pivotal conversations in all of human history. Our souls desperately seek living water. And Jesus appears to us this morning and says, I am he. Whoa. Lord, give us capacity, spiritual capacity in our souls, in our hearts, in our minds to understand this, to embrace it, to come live and reside in us. So, Father, do your work this morning, we pray, through the power of your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name that we lift these things up. Amen. Have a seat. Let me just jump right to it. No funny little ditties or stories to to transition us into the text. It doesn't need that. The word worship or worshiper is used, wait for it, 10 times in this passage. 10 times. Either the word worship or its variant worshiper is used. Now, do you think John might be trying to tell us something? Do you think John John might be saying, hey, 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 I've got something to flag for you. There's something really important that I need to tell you about this living water. And so that's going to be our subject matter. And you need to know, just as a little brief run-up to the text, there's there's two, not, not exclusively, but two general ways that Scripture speaks to us about worship, okay? One is what we would call God's people gathered, like what we're doing now. We are gathered here for worship. Now, when you, many of you know, I grew up in Tennessee, and I grew up going to, to Tennessee football games in Knoxville, and one of the things that it, it never dawned on me until much later in life, but that I actually had a choice about whether to go to the game or not. So, so I mean, like, that was just, it was a given, didn't matter what was going on, what the record was, how good, how terrible, what crisis was happening in life. On Saturday, what we did was get up at 7 a.m. and drive two hours north to Knoxville, Tennessee and go to the game. It never occurred to me that it was possible to do anything else. Now, some of you who hunt are like that. It's hunting season, and whether it's turkey or deer or some other precious creature of God that you slaughter... It never never dawned on you that you might be able to not do that one morning. If you're a bargain hunter, I'm looking at all the eBayers out there, do you realize you do not have to get up at an ungodly hour on Saturday morning to shop at garage sales and go through other people's junk? Do you realize that's an option you have? Can you, Grace, can someone tell mom that? Um, 
For 2,000 years, it's never dawned on the Christian community to do anything else but to get up on the first day of the week when the Lord Jesus rose from the grave and to come be with his people. For 2,000 years, it has been the rhythm of the Christian life where people gather, they worship, they hear God's word, they pray, they fellowship, they take the sacraments, communion, they baptize, all of those things. It's the most basic rhythm. And probably until about 10 or 20 years ago, it never dawned on anyone that, that you should not do that. It's just, it's just endemic to being a part of the Christian faith, for being a part of, uh, of the people of God. It's what we do. It's who we are. So the, so the scripture has a lot to say about worship gathered. But there's a second way the scripture talks about worship that's broader than that, which is this idea that worship is scattered, meaning when we leave here in three or four hours, did you catch that? Okay, or so, you will scatter. And, and we'll see each other in community groups and on Wednesday night if you're a good Christian and all that sort of stuff. But by and large, we're, we're kind of, we won't be back until we're, until we're here. But did you realize that when we leave here, we leave worshiping? What you do in that car ride on the way home is an act of worship. How you balance your checkbook, how you treat your children, how they treat you, how you steward your money, your time. Paul says in Romans 12, 1 through 2, to, to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, acceptable and pleasing to God. Why? Because they are your spiritual acts of what? Worship. Okay? And you've heard us say this ad nauseum. Worship is not what Christians do. Worship is what people do. All of us are worshipers. Even people who disavow the existence of God are worshipers. They worship. We all value and treasure something. And for the believer, that's the Lord Jesus Christ lived out in all that we do. We worship what we love. We are scattered. When we are scattered here, we go about worshiping. So there's worship gathered, there's worship scattered, and John wants to have a conversation with us about our worship, personally and corporately. And there's three things, I think they're pretty straightforward, easy to grasp, that we're going to look at from the text, and here they are. Worship, first of all, must be personal. Number two, worship will be hard. If you can make it that far, okay, that's an interesting point. Worship will be hard. And three, worship is always hope-filled. Worship must be personal. You know, parents, now that your kids have gone back to school, you know, one of the most frustrating conversations a parent can have with their children is the post-pickup school conversation, right? How was your day? And parents, what do you get? fine. Okay. It's like a dentist trying to extract teeth, right? So, so you're so used to that dynamic of like, and it's like the more you ask parents, the worse it gets. And it's like you're in quicksand trying to, trying to dig. But what happens when, you're, when your kids come home one day and they say, mom and dad, how was your day? Tell me, tell me what you wrestled with today, mom and dad. How can I serve you? What, what, what is your, what, what, what is our, what, what immediately happens? Like, we're, we're, we just start sniffing something out, like, uh-oh, okay, here's the big obfuscation, here we go. This is the big sleight of hand, there is a diversion, something has happened today, and they don't want me to get near it, right? And so maybe if they ask me about my day, I'll forget 
everything that's happened in their day and how they were expelled or whatever happened, right? Now, some have looked at this passage as an example of that. So th- this woman is, is confronted with her sin, and it, this is not like little league sin. This is big league sin. It's public. It's out there. And that in an, in an attempt to sort of divert Jesus's attention away from her heart, she brings up some irrelevancy about worship. Now, let me just say, I don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's what's going on. And the reason I don't is because John MacArthur said it's not going on. No, no, okay. no. I, here, here's a couple of things that I think we need to consider. First, I think this reflects genuine spiritual engagement by this woman. In fact, I'll go so far as to say I think we are seeing the new birth happen like right in the middle. I think, I think we're getting a sneak peek on this woman having her world rocked and and wrestling and grappling with the basic spiritualities of her life. And I do say this seriously for two reasons. First of all, the woman's testimony. Next week when we get to the end of this passage, we're going to find out that it was through this woman's testimony that this entire village of Samaritans was saved. So clearly there is new life happening in this woman. Secondly, there's, if she's really trying to divert Jesus' attention from her heart, she clearly is doing a very poor job of this. Is she not? Hmm, you seem like a prophet. Hmm, let's talk about our religious perspectives. No, 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 no. I, I, there's a lot of responses she could have given that, that she might have thought would have sent Jesus in the other direction. She could have left. She could have refused to answer his questions. She could have ignored him. She could have tried to to debate him. But she actually responds with an invitation that only encourages dialogue. Okay, so so look, 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 look back at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, Jesus I don't even know your name, but I perceive there's something very different about you. You know my past. You know my present. You see right into my, right into my heart. You are no ordinary human being. To use our vernacular, who in the world are you? Who in the world are you? Now, if you keep going down from, from verse 19... We find that she then says, Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See, as a reminder, the Jews and Samaritans, um, let's just say, didn't agree amicably about religion. Um, we, we, we know from, from history that as the northern kingdom was exiled Israel and sent off into captivity, that the Assyrians repopulated that area of northern Israel with some of their folks to intermingle with some of the Jewish folks that were left behind. And what resulted was this kind of this cauldron of chaos and confusion. So they, they intermarried, and, and, and the, the, the Jewish religion was, was contaminated and torn asunder and became confused. And, and so because of this, the Jews just really looked at the Samaritans as, as half-breeds. But part of this, this whole controversy was that the Jews said, we worship in Jerusalem. That's where God said to worship. 
because they, they, they believed all of the, what we now have as the Old Testament. But the Samaritans, on the other hand, only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And there they took their cues to say, we should be worshiping here on Mount Gerizim. And that was not an insignificant debate, an insignificant discussion. It went to the very heart of their religion. What, what is the woman saying? I think she's recognizing something. You know what, Jesus? You were clearly are something otherworldly. And that probably has some sort of claim on me, religiously. Because you Jews, she knew that Jesus was a Jew, said, you Jews worship this way, we worship this way, this other way, and they both can't be right, can they? There, 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 there's, there's something afoot. This is sort of raising all sorts of questions for me, Jesus, things that I believed, things that I put a stake in the ground in. And guys, that's what regeneration does, by the way. It uproots all of our assumptions. It uproots all of our preconceptions. It, 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 it transforms our entire way of thinking in every category of our life. And I think this woman is begin, beginning to wrestle with that reality. She knows that there are competing truth claims and that they both can't be right. So Jesus says something interesting in verse 21. He almost seems as if he ignores the question. <laughs> but I think what he really does is that he answers the question behind the question. Okay, look at verse 21. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither, <laughs> hear that? Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, if you're a Jew, this is just an extraordinarily amazing, unbelievable, provocative, controversial thing to say. Because the temple was the center of worship in Judaism. I mean, it was where it happened. It's where the Holy of Holies was. It was where the, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It was where the sacrifices were made, where the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, it's where it happened on an annual basis. When people came to celebrate their relationship with God, their faith in God, they went up to Jerusalem. It was, it was, it was a highly significant central point and focus of worship. By the way, this isn't in the sermon notes, but I'll go there anyway. You know, the conflict in the Middle East between the Palestinians and the Israelis and the Muslims and the Jews apart from the gospel, will never be resolved this side of eternity. And it's because, for Jews, this is still the case. That's why Jews gather daily by the hundreds, sometimes by the thousands, at the Wailing Wall, which is the only piece of this temple. It's not even part of the temple. It's part of the Temple Mount to mourn the loss of their center of worship. And for them, it is there and it is no other place. Muslims, by the same token, believe that because of the Dome of the Rock that's on the temple site, that it is their sacred rite and passage and place of worship. And there is no compromise. You can't compromise with that. It's all about who has the most guns. And that's why the gospel is the only solution, because Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. 
It's not about where you worship. What does he tell this woman? It's about whom you worship. See? It's, it's, you think it's about this temple or this mountain or this thing, and, and you're, asking, you're asking the wrong question. It's not about a place. It's about me. It's about a person. You know, if you're new here um, and don't know the history of Four Oaks um, at all, and this is, this is the time when the regulars go, okay, we've heard of, uh, all right, okay. But you got, we, we got to remember these things. It's like looking at the, the photo album of the family, right? You know, we haven't been in this building forever and ever. So it's, you know, we, we were a nomadic church for many years meeting wherever they would let us meet. <laughs> Gilchrist, the Tupperware Warehouse, Child's High School, Community Christian School, we are now worshiping in the former food lion, okay? And this, this should be really humbling to us. The slaughterbacks are sitting where the frozen meats once resided, okay? You can still kind of smell them from up here, just by the way. Of all the things that we learned that year about service and generosity and being the people of God, let me tell you one of the most enduring lessons we learned that year is that worship is not about a place, Church is not about a place. Church is its people. Worship is about a person. That's why we need to remind ourselves about this all the time. If this building ceased to exist, if the zombie apocalypse came upon us and didn't affect any of us, of course, or our children, okay, we would not cease to exist as a church. We just pack it up and go find someplace else say from the zombies, of course, but nonetheless, you get, you get the idea, right? See, this is the point John attempts to make over and over in this gospel. That's why Jesus says, destroy this temple, and what? I'll raise it up in three days. Because, he, because the temple for him was no longer about a physical structure. The temple was his body, which means that for Christians, the, 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 the location of worship has, has shifted from being at a particular place to being about a people worshiping God, scattered or gathered wherever they are. Now, we have to ask, what does that mean, though, for what we might call the externals of worship? Okay, because we do live, we do reside in a building. Okay? We do think buildings are important. We do think how we order and structure our worship is important. And, and worship are just like belly buttons, right? Everybody has one, and they're all different. Okay, so everybody has a perspective on worship. Okay, I have a perspective on worship. I have a preference about certain kinds of music, certain kind of styles, and you undoubtedly do too. Is it, do, do, do we do just something like this? which is kind of more contemporary low church, or we go across the street to St. Peter's, fine folks, okay, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, and worship in a more cathedral, high church-like context, okay? Some people have this idea, you know, and, and this woman was this way too. She had this, this category of ought to, okay? We ought to worship here, you ought to worship there. And, and Jesus said, I'm not even going to go there. And that's a good reminder for us because all of us have ought to's when it comes to worship. Okay, you might be more of a high church person, and because you want, you want to value, understandably, the transcendence, the holiness of God, you're like, it's got to be about hymns 
It's got to be about robes and creeds and readings and candles and crucifixes and something else with a C. Um, incense. Hey, I do have a ministerial robe, and I may just rock that thing next week just for fun, right? And you may have a thought, if that's not there, that's not worship. This is irreverent. This is too casual. This is too contemporary. Some of you are on the other side because you want to rightly emphasize the imminence of God, that God is with us, that we bring a sacrifice of praise into his, his presence. And unless there's some hand-raising and some emoting, and, and, is, and we better be singing songs written after 2003, and the pastor better have a faux hawk, sorry guys, okay, sit on a stool. Unless it's casual contemporary, that's not worship. I can't worship. And Jesus says, wrong. I've got to be careful here. How we worship is an important discussion. But what Jesus is saying is that's not the most important discussion. It's not, about, it's not about where, and it's not even so much about the externals. It's about your heart. It's about the who. It's about the person. Now, I know some of you have strong preferences. I've got strong preferences. There's somebody in here who won't be named, but I love him so. He would love it if we did cowboy country worship, okay, to which I've said over my dead electronic riding bull. That will never happen, Okay. I'm really anxious to avoid that. But you know what? It's not about that. Guys, I'm so thankful that worship wars have not left their scars on this church. Because guaranteed, when worship wars go down in a church, you better believe the externals are getting bigger and Jesus is getting smaller, always. Which, which is why, of course, what we do is important. How we do it, why we do it, that's a whole nother sermon. That's a whole nother sermon. But for this sermon, what we have to say is that while there are many important things about wor- that are important for worship gathered, the most important thing is what? Jesus Christ. And you can raise your hands and have slides or you can have robes, and, but if Jesus is not a part of that equation, you don't have worship. You don't have true worship. You don't have biblical worship. So our one ought to from this passage is Jesus. So worship must be personal. Number two, we'll go through these a little quicker. Worship will be hard, which might sound strange. Why is worship hard? So I want to shift our focus now from what happens in here, worship gathered, to what happens out there, worship scattered. You know, Wednesday night, because we didn't have enough to eat. <laughs> um, a number of us dismissed ourselves after Wednesday night reboot and headed up to, to Newberry. I think half the church showed up up there. And, and we have to think about why, why do we love, and I, again, this is called transference, why, why psychologists, what psychologists call like what I think and feel, I'm going to make you think and feel too. But why we love Newberry so much, okay, why, why everybody's up there having just a great time, it's because you get to, you get to create your own. Right? There's no one specific way to create your Newberry yogurt. They're all equal. They're all awesome. Now, they're not all equally beautiful. Some of our kids make them highly gross, okay? But you get what I'm saying. We get to create our own little special nugget of reality. And so I, I get mine. I always get the little sea salt caramel and the Butterfinger stuff on top and cherries and hot fudge sundae. Magically, it's fat-free, sugar-free, calorie-free. It's unbelievable. And so, so we, we're, we're eating our Newberry. And we love it because there's no right or wrong way to do yogurt, right? The consumer is the king. If you like it, it's great. 
See, I think we live in a, in a culturally, a, with sort of what I would call a Newberry spirituality. There's no such thing as right or wrong. It's, it's your spirituality is yours. You're free to create a little bit of this, a little bit of that. The only important thing in creating your spirituality in our culture is that you're sincere and that you're authentic. And if you're sincere and if you're authentic, whoa, let no one question your spirituality. That, that's, that's where we are. And interestingly, Jesus speaks to this as well. See, because the first point we love, first pronouncement is it's not about a place, it's about a person. And most of us are like, yay. The second thing, though, he says is this. We worship what we know. You worship what you don't know. In other words, not all worship is created equal. Not all worship is the same. Not all worship is equally acceptable to God. See, this idea, look at verse 23, that Jesus, that God is looking for true worshipers as opposed to what? False worshipers. See, there's a way to worship, and we'll get into this in a second, in spirit and truth. In fact, verse 25 says, we must worship in a particular way. Now, when Jesus tells this woman that salvation is from the Jews, I think what he means is that while God was going to bless all of the nations through the people of Israel, and the Messiah was going to come through the line of Abraham, ultimately there was only one way. And this is Jesus' way of telling this woman, yes, while your worship may be sincere, while your worship in, from your perspective may be authentic, that doesn't make your worship true. And that, let's, just, let's be honest, folks, that is a hard, hard thing in a postmodern culture. That not all worship is created equal. That your worship, my worship, might be fatally flawed. But in fact, this is what Jesus says, and, 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 and let's kind of unpack this and what he means by this idea that any who worship the Father must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, let's, 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 let's hit that just for a second. This word spirit, first of all, look in the text. He, he notes that God is a spirit, and so we must worship in spirit and truth. I think he's talking about our spirit. What, what I think he means is that because God is a spirit— in order for there to be communion, relationship, fellowship with him, a reconciled relationship between us and God, our spirits must be united to his spirit. And the only way that can happen, and we saw this back in John 3, is for your heart to be changed, for my heart to be changed, for our hearts to be regenerated, for us to be born again. You see, this call to worship in spirit means that it is no less than your active heart engaged with the spirit of the living God. And it doesn't matter if you've got the forms right. It doesn't matter if you've got the content right. But if your heart has not been changed, if you are not trusting in Jesus Christ, 
That is not true worship. You know, the, the, the background, the tribe that, that I am a part of kind of theologically, kind of the, the reformed, doctrinally sound, we hold up truth, that tribe, which, which you by extension are, are a part of too. There's been a number of, of instances in the, in the past few years, kind of notorious incidents, at least among pastor types, people who make their living in full-time ministry, of men who have seemingly had all the forms of worship correct. And by that I mean they knew their doctrine. They were great teachers. They were great people of influence, only to discover that they were truly a whitewashed tomb. Men taking their lives because their secret lives had been discovered. Men who, who, whose marriages have crumbled because there was this facade of, of the right-looking kind of worship, and by that I mean both personally gathered and scattered, but inside their souls were dead. Their spirits were not alive. They had seemingly not been born again. And, and, and it's, it's a sobering critique to remind us that, and you may say, Pastor Paul, you're trying to scare me when you say this. Yes, okay, the holy fear of the Lord, okay, that we can be in here week after week, but if our souls are not alive, if they have not been regenerated, made new in Christ, that worship is not acceptable to God. We have to worship in spirit. We also have to worship in truth. Now, what is Jesus getting at here? Because there's a lot we could say about this and lots of sermons that we could preach on it. But I think fundamentally what Jesus says, what he means by this, worship the Father in spirit and in truth, is that any worship that does not have Jesus at the center is not true worship. Any worship that does not have Jesus at the center is not true worship. In fact, it is John goes to great pains in his gospel to tell us time after time after time, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to whom? The Father, except through me. What does he tell the, the Pharisees? If you had known the Father, you would have known me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father. But because you don't know me, you don't know him. And because you don't know him, you don't know me. Any worship that happens in someone else's name is not true worship. And let's be honest, that is a really hard truth, at least in our culture. See, 25, 50 years ago, these were, these were issues for missionaries. These were issues for people like the Nizers who were, who were ministering among the Muslims. Or the, these were issues for the, the Van Stratums who were ministering among the Hindus and, and Buddhists. Now, this is your next-door neighbor. It's my next-door neighbor. David Wells says this idea of one truth, one way to God in our culture is becoming increasingly implausible. It's just, it's nonsensical. People don't want to hear it. In fact, people will ruthlessly stamp it out. Because it's hard when you're asked, are you saying that I'm going to hell because I don't believe in your religion? Are you, are you saying that I'm going to hell because I don't believe in your Jesus? And let me say this. 
Not only is that the test of true Christianity, we see this time after time. He who denies me, I will deny him. It's, 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 the, it's, it's, the, it's, it's the central test of conviction and truth. But there's a great danger when we, see, we, we think this is hard news, and it is. But we think it's bad news. See, we think that's bad news. And when we think something's bad news, you know, when you have a piece of bad news, are you eager to come home and tell everybody about it? Of course not. That's why we don't speak. That's why we, we, we lack courage is because we think this is bad news. When in reality, in reality, we are cutting people off from the very best news. See, the answer to the question, are you saying I'm going to hell because I don't believe in your religion, is say, I think we're all going to hell. <laughs> Me first. We are all sinful and broken and jacked up, and we all need a Savior. And I believe that that person is Jesus. That's hard news, but it is good news. And this brings us to our last point. I'm just going to say a couple things we're done. Worship is always hope-filled. See, this is hopeful news. See, Jesus says, go, go back to the text, the hour is coming and is now here. Now, I love this verse. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, now listen to this, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What kind of people is, is God seeking today, here? Your next door neighbor, your people at work? What kind of people is he seeking? He is seeking true worshipers. God's seeking. God is not passive. God is not standing at a distance. It says God is pursuing. It's now interesting. Where 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 is Jesus when he makes that pronouncement? Where is he? Samaria. <laughs> Samaria. God is seeking worshipers in Samaria. Broken, sinful, adulterous like people who at the time were not from the right social class, not from the right background, were not the right ethnicity, who had made wretched, terrible choices in their life, God says, I am seeking them. Those are the true worshipers that I'm after. You've seen the Disney Pixar movie Ratatouille. The theme of that movie is that anyone can cook, right? When a rat cooks, anyone can cook, right? So, so the rat's cooking, and there's, there's this famous, infamous critic, food critic, Anton, who, who, who just has his nose just stuck way in the air and just thinks, unless you're from a particular culinary school, and, and of course you've got to be French, that's, that goes without saying, but unless you're French from a particular culinary school, um, from a particular background, trained under the best, there's no way that you can be a gook. There's no way. And the story is about how he comes to understand his prejudice and the reality. And I'm going to give, this is a great quote. The critic says, not everyone can become a great artist, but a great artist can come from anywhere. For Oaks, not everyone is going to be a part of the kingdom. Unfortunately, we know that. But a citizen of the king can come from anywhere. Anyone 
can be a part of the kingdom of God. You're telling me I'm going to hell if I don't believe in Jesus. I'm telling you we're all going to hell if we don't believe in Jesus. But God is seeking true worshipers. Even Samaritans like you and me. Jesus ends this interaction with this woman with just the very best of news. And when we hide it, when we are ashamed of it, when we don't tell it, we are cutting people off from the only hope that they will ever have. Jesus says it like this. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Lots of things Jesus could have said but didn't say. Keep looking, girl. I hope it goes well with you. You know, whatever you decide, whatever path you choose, as long as you're sincere about it, as long as you're authentic, that'll work. No, no, Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. Wherever you are today, if you're, if, you're, if you're the racist in Charlottesville, if you're the, the Samaritan woman, or you're just someone who's rolled in here week after week and realized there's no activity in my heart, God says, worship me. I'm seeking out true worshipers. Just turn to me. Come to me. Wherever you are today, the, the door to the kingdom is thrown wide open. This is a great communion text, by the way, because when we come to, to, to take the bread and the wine, we're not saying that I'm coming today because of what I've done this week. I'm coming today because I've kept the code. I'm coming today because, because my heart has been pure. No, 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 no. This is for those who are worshiping Jesus in spirit and truth. That simply means my heart's been made alive through the power of the Spirit and I'm trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for my salvation. That is amazing news. This is an amazing pronouncement. The hour is not just coming, folks. The hour is here.